Welcome to our September Rewind. Each week we will replay one of our most popular episodes from season one, but with an intro from a guest who has a special connection to the topic. We will be back for season two with all new content starting October 4th. So without further ado, here's our special guest. Hi, I'm Ross, creator of The Daily Jaws, the world's largest online Jaws fan community. Our mission is to celebrate the phenomenon, history, legacy, and craft of Jaws as well as shark cinema by keeping fans updated with the latest news, reviews and events. By working closely with leading shark experts and building on the conservation work of the likes of Jaws author Peter Benchley, we also educate people about sharks and the threats facing them. That's the true legacy of Jaws and the people it continues to inspire in the ocean and behind the camera. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Twitter. And you can also visit our website thedailyjaws.com where we publish new content each day. I was thrilled to be asked by Candy and Ashley to introduce episodes 39 and 40 of the Scandal Water podcast, which is all about Jaws. Now, before I hand over to the girls, I'd love to share with you one little fact about Jaws that you may not know. Next time you watch the movie, pay close attention to the scene when Quint is on the radio to the Amity Point Life Station officer, because the voice on the other end of the radio is director Steven Spielberg. Until next time, I bid you a fond farewell and adieu. Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories and scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Hi, Ashley. Hello, Candy. It's good to be recording again. It is. And I'm very excited about our topic today. Oh my gosh, me too. Yeah. For our listeners, this is one that Ashley and I have discussed. We both know what we're doing. In fact, we Mm -hmm. have both done quite a bit of preparation. And I think this one's going to be a fun episode that everybody's going to be able to relate to. I think it's safe to say that you have done more preparation than me, but I still (laughs) had a good time doing my preparation. Awesome. Well, then let's start by sharing a little bit of our background. Okay. The topic is... Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh-huh. Can you guess? Just with two notes, can you guess what it is? I bet you all know. <laughs> I bet they can. <laughs> As you probably guessed, the topic today is Jaws, which, by the way, is the first ever summer blockbuster. We'll come back to that yes. again later. So our theme this month is Jaws and Jurassic, Steven Spielberg's summer blockbusters. And what we've decided to do, because this is such a big episode, is we've actually turned it into a two-parter. So actually, what I wonder is, what are some of your memories 
from your very first time watching Jaws? Oh, okay. So my very first time watching it back in when I was a teenager, I had a list of movies that I, I was morbid. Okay. I had a list of movies that I was like, I want to see this before I die. Oh my and gosh. I know I said <laughs> it was morbid. Teenager. Yes, I did. I w- I've been very aware of mortality for a very long time. <laughs> and so I made a list of stuff I wanted to see. And that was on the list. Okay. I recorded it off Turner Classic Movies. I'm sure Robert Osborne did a mm. intro for it and I watched it and I don't remember what I thought of it other than, you know, the iconic stuff. But on my rewatch last night, which I think is the first time I've rewatched it since I was a teenager, oh. I loved it. But yeah. I know we'll get to that later. Yeah. So what's your memory of it? I remember thinking reflectively as an older person looking back that I was way too young to have seen it, <laughs> that it terrified yeah. me. I remember that I had to cover my eyes mm. when I saw that opening scene with the girl yes. in the water yes. and how violent yes. the attack was. Her body just being dragged yes. back and forth. That absolutely just set me aback. I mean, yes. I that got me. <laughs> yes. And so I remember also you, you started with a little bit of, you know, the that the theme song. That was powerful to me because I remember that even looking down, closing my eyes, that music would tear me up because mm-hmm. the suspense it built, even without watching the screen, was just unbelievable. It's the first, I made a note when I was rewatching it last night, the first thing that you hear, it is a black screen and you hear those notes. That is our introduction to this film and it is it is perfect. Yeah. I'm probably thinking, saying, going back to why I watched it, I was also on this huge Steven Spielberg kick mm, yeah. because he was the filmmaker that I admired and I wanted to see all of his works and I knew mm-hmm. that he had kind of struggled when he was an early filmmaker and so I was like, ooh, somebody that struggled. I want to know how they struggled. So right. that was another reason to watch it. I asked Kirk about some of his memories and he also was terrified by Jaws. Although, unlike me, he said it never made him afraid of the water. I do recall being afraid of the ocean. A hundred percent. Yeah. I did not actually get to see the ocean for the first time until I was 18. Mm. But I wasn't even that devastated because I always thought mm-hmm. when I see it, I'm going to be afraid to get in. Oh yeah. No, I won't get in. Yeah. No. And one time when we went to the ocean, there was some fishermen and there was a shark. I mean, a little shark. It wasn't a scary shark, mm-hmm. but it was a little one caught off and they pulled it in. I was like, yeah, no, I'm good. Ankle deep. That's all I need. <laughs> yep. Ankle deep. Just get my feet wet. That's that's about all I need forever. Wonderful. I love <laughs> this. Great. Well, what Kirk did share was a standout observation for him was that he remembered after seeing it, they ended up back at the house with several of his family members. He had a lot of aunts and uncles. Mm-hmm. And he remembers the adults sitting around talking about the movie, like even a day or two later. Yeah. And it registered with him how unusual that was because most of the time it was like, see the movie and then, you know, mm-hmm. your entertainment's over and it, it's out of your mind. Mm-hmm. And he said they kept talking about it. This because the characters were so good. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a great production that that it, it has maintained relevance all this time because it's a show that came out in 1975. Right. But as I was starting to research, here's what I found out, Ashley. Mm. So just this past February, a show called The Shark is Broken closed. It was written, I should say co-written, by Ian Shaw, who <gasps> was the son of Robert Shaw, the man who played Quint in the movie. I just got goosebumps. Right. And the co-writer was Joseph Nixon, who is related to Nixon. Oh. I can't remember how. It might be a son as well, but I don't hold me to that. Okay. But these two fellows wrote this play called The Shark 
Dark is Broken. It actually premiered at the 2019 Edinburgh Fringe and sold out. It was supposed to be brilliantly funny is, is the mm-hmm. phrase that they that they used. So they brought it back and it ran from October 2021 through mid-February of 2022 at the Ambassador's Theater in London's West End and had rave reviews. Oh, I want to see this. Ian actually portrayed his, his dad, dad in the show. Oh. Mm-hmm. And so here's what it was about. They show these three men stuck on a boat. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be Robert Shaw stuck with Richard Dreyfus, played by Liam Murray Scott, and Roy Scheider, who was played by Dimitri Gorosas. As the tensions waxed and waned, the play's website offered this little teaser. Martha's Vineyard, 1974. Shooting on Jaws mm-hmm. has stalled. The film's lead actors, Robert Shaw, Roy Scheider, and Richard Dreyfus, are stuck on a boat at the mercy of foul weather and a faulty mechanical coaster. A wash with alcohol and ambition, three hammered sharks start to bare their teeth. I love it. How clever is that? I love it. Well, so still relevant mm. all this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just one little quick side note, just because it's interesting. Ian Shaw, in helping to write this, I'm sure called on a lot of resources as well, but yeah. he was able to pull from his own background knowledge. I'm sure his dad, although we should we should qualify that his dad died when he was very young, but mm-hmm. he probably heard some of those memories from his father, I'm sure. Yeah. And he actually got to visit the set of Jaws when he was five years old. Oh, wow. So he he had a little bit of his own, you know, his own memory there that he could call from. That's very cool. Yeah. Although I don't remember hardly anything when I was five. Do you remember anything when you were five? Well, not a lot. I always so, remember traumatic stuff. Like I got put in the corner on my first day of kindergarten. That's what I remember. Oh, yeah. Well, that would be that something would do you it. would remember. And it was because the girl was talking to me. It was during don't talk time. And so she asked me a question. I answered it. I remember. Of it. <laughs> I remember. It's because it was unfair. <laughs> <laughs> she asked me about a pin I was wearing. I still recall that. That's Isn't my that memory. Funny? Yeah. I think if I got to visit the set of Jaws in my I would remember venue, that. I would probably remember that as that well. That would stick out. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, here's another reason mm-hmm. why it is still relevant today. Or I should say, here's other evidence mm-hmm. that it is still relevant today. There is a new musical called Bruce that is going to be coming out in just a few weeks. Stop Have it. you heard of this? No, I have not. Based on the 1975 memoir, The Jaws Log, written by Carl Gottlieb, who you guys are going to hear a lot more about in this episode because he was the Mm co-screenwriter of Jaws. And actually, let's just do a little quick pause here. Almost all the resources, the sources that we used, pulled things from this 1975 memoir, The Jaws Log. So huge shout out in addition to interviews with Carl that we got to listen to on the podcast Inside Mm -hmm. Jaws and other interviews that he did in, in magazines. The point is this man is a huge source he's a for treasure. a lot of the memories. Yeah. yeah. So we just want to make sure we say that. Did you know front. he's in the movie too? I did. Yeah. I saw that. So anyway, this this musical, Bruce, if they are still on track, there was a promo article that was published just a few weeks ago. It said that the play will begin previewing at Seattle Rep's Bagley Wright Theater on May 27th, 2022 with an opening night set for June 1st and the engagement will run through June 26th of 2022. That's like in a few days. Uh-huh. Oh I mean, God. it's coming up by the 
the time this airs, yeah, it will be, be running. Oh. Yeah. So here's what it says again from that same article that was promoting the play. Bruce tells the story of a virtually unknown 26-year-old director named Steven Spielberg, who in 1974 sets out to film an adaptation of the best-selling novel Jaws. Here's the synopsis that they give for the musical. While invading a sleeping fishing island off Cape Cod to shoot on the open ocean, he faced several challenges including weather, water, hostile locals, an exploding budget, endless delays, and a highly dysfunctional mechanical star mm-hmm. named Bruce mm-hmm. to bring his vision to life in what proved to be one of the biggest success stories in film history. Isn't that amazing? I love all these stories that are telling the story of the story because it is it is so amazing that it got made. Yeah. And I don't know if I'll remember to say this later, but one of the I started reading the IMDb trivia last night. There's like 300 pieces of trivia. I didn't make it through. I fell asleep. I'm sorry. (laughs) But did you know that the shark in Finding Nemo, Bruce, is named for... I didn't know that either. either. I love that. I know. I know. And that Bruce was named for Spielberg's lawyer. I did know that one. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) How clever. Obviously, this production that aired in 1975 and almost didn't make it because of Mm -hmm. all the problems that it faced, not only set records at the time... But we're still having productions and, and conversations about it all these years later. Mm-hmm. So we are super excited to yeah, do we are. this episode around Jaws. And we are ready to jump in. So here we go. Jump in. You said jump in. Make a splash. Ooh. We're ready to make a splash. <laughs> Love it. So for those of you who may not know, Jaws was set in the fictional beach town of Amity. And of course, was based on the best-selling novel called Jaws that was released in 1973. It was written by Peter Benchley. Mm-hmm. The film starred Roy Scheider as police chief Martin Brody, Richard Dreyfus as marine biologist Matt Hooper, and as we've already mentioned, Robert Shaw was the grizzled fisherman named Quint. Now, we're going to go into them a little bit more later. We're going to have a little section where we talk about the cast, but just to kind of continue this summary, I just did a quick little Google search, and here's what popped up as a nice little synopsis for the film. When a young woman is killed by a shark while skinny dipping near the New England tourist town of Amity Island, police chief Martin Brody wants to close the beaches, but Mayor Larry Vaughn overrules him, fearing that the loss of tourist revenue will cripple the town. Oceanographer Matt Hooper and grizzled ship captain Quint offer to help Brody capture the killer beast and the trio engage in an epic battle of man versus nature. Yeah, that's good. Grizzled, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, offer to help? Mm, he wants to be paid $10,000. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> no, that's not offering to help. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Matt offers to help. Hooper offers to help. Quentin's like, you're going to pay me. That's so true. But he, but once he's on that mission, yeah. it's not about the money. No, no, not anymore. It, it mm-hmm. has become like this person. It, it makes me think of like Moby Dick yes, or something. It does. Yes. Yeah. So Steven Spielberg was trying to make it big at this time. He was not the big name director. He had put out a couple of productions. The most recent one was called Duel, and it had received some really nice critical reviews, mm-hmm. but did super poorly in the box office. Hadn't he also done Sugarland Express by that time? I believe so. Yeah, with Goldie yeah. Hawn and it had not right. it had not done also well. disappointing for mm-hmm. what he wanted. So, even though he was a little concerned about being typecast, there was a quote where he said, "Who wants to be known as a shark and truck director?" <laughs> so, even though he had some concerns, he thought that taking on Jaws, this movie would be a good opportunity to try to prove his skills as a director and of course the book was a bestseller. So, there was potential here. He did see the potential and he decided to take this on. Now, the production team wanted the film to be 
made in a tank. I mean, the thing that people mm-hmm. normally do, film it in a tank in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Stephen insisted, no. He wanted it on the ocean. He wanted the authenticity. He thought that would make a difference. It does. So he signed on, agreeing that this would be an ocean production. It was supposed to be a 55-day shoot, and they decided to do it at Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts because they needed a summer beach resort town that had a sheltered bay, manageable tides, and shallow waters because Mm. all of that was going to help with the filming. Right. Now, later, Steven Spielberg reflected that he had absolutely no idea how many problems he was going to encounter and how much sleep he was going to lose. Mm -hmm. Not only was he stressed out over making this movie, but he was worried like every day that he was going to get fired and that he was ruining his career and his chances to ever make it big as a director. Yeah. In fact, Ashley and I both listened to the podcast Inside Jaws. I know that. Mark Ramsey. Carl Gottlieb, this man who was given credit as one of the co-writers of the screenplay, he shared that Stephen found comfort in the smell of celery. Do you remember this (laughs) part? That he would fall asleep. He would put celery stalks in his pillowcase because it would help soothe him to sleep. Right. Because I loved how he would so much Sleep. He would get up every day and vomit. And I'm like, I can identify with this man's anxiety. But yes. this poor guy, can I know. you imagine? Like, I know. We look at him and go, wow, this movie made him and mm-hmm. what a great opportunity. And this poor little 26-year-old guy is thinking, this is it. I'm blowing it. I'm never going to succeed and, and I'm going to be blackballed forever probably. And I think that's why this has got such a broad appeal because not only is it a great film, but the behind the scenes is such an underdog mm-hmm. story that yes. it makes people like myself who continually face quote-unquote financial failures you know you have all of this investment and you think oh when is it going to actually break through it's like it may happen or it may not but it's so encouraging to know even these people these academy award mm-hmm. revered people all had this kind of start yeah or at yeah. least he did i don't know if they all did but he did and it's also reassuring it we're going to come back to this later in terms of the characters the fact that they were real and they had mm-hmm. their flaws mm-hmm. you know we take people like Steven Spielberg and we make them iconic in our Mm -hmm. mind and, you know, they seem perfect. And to to hear about the anxiety and Mm -hmm. the self-doubts that he experienced, you know, that really humanizes humanizes him too. Yeah. So before we, I know you've got some more points to make, but before we move on, I wanted to point out that Peter Benchley, Mm -hmm. the one that wrote the novel Jaws, was a pretty, had a pretty famous family himself. His dad was Nathaniel Benchley, who was a novelist and his grandfather, Robert Benchley, was a humorist that was associated with New Yorker magazine and he hung out at the Algonquin round table with Dorothy Parker and that lot. Very cool. Pretty cool stock right there. Yeah, I did not run across that. I remember seeing something about Peter Benchley having that esteemed writing background himself. I believe he quit his job writing for, I want to say, President Johnson Mm. in order to write that novel. That was in that podcast. Yeah. So Peter Benchley had some chops behind him. Yes, he did. Well, I thought it would be fun since it's such a a big thing. I mean, we just talked about two different productions that are current that are really kind of focused around the dysfunction and the uh, issues, the challenges that Steven Spielberg and his cast and crew faced in the making of this movie. So I thought, well, why not organize our podcast episode around that? So we're going to talk about three problems that they had to face in the making of Jaws and use that to kind of guide us through this. Okay. So the first problem was simply the technical difficulties or the filming challenges that they faced, many of which were because Steven Spielberg had insisted they were going to do this on the ocean. That was a huge part of it. Because if they'd done this in a tank in Hollywood, probably a lot of these problems wouldn't have reared their ugly heads. 
Well, but then would we be talking about this movie? We would not. I can guarantee it. Yeah. But one of the things, which is super fun that Ashley and I have already alluded to, was the fact that in order to make Jaws scary, to make it as effective and suspenseful as Steven Spielberg wanted it to be, they needed these sharks that looked realistic. Mm -hmm. They needed to have basically their their jaws, which took not one mechanical shark, but actually three Mm -hmm. to achieve. And one can only go left. One could only go right. Right. And then one could only go up and down or something like that. I don't remember the third one. I don't remember exactly, although it talked about, it's funny, different articles would describe it different ways. One article said it was almost like it was on the arm of a crane so that it could go in a straight line for like 50 feet. So I think they wanted movement. Okay. But another article said that the models were towed by submerged, they use the term sleds, or guided by hidden scuba divers. So I think they, yeah, as you said, they needed the different angles, but they also needed to be able to show kind of the whole fish as it was moving. Uh-huh. And so it took three different models to achieve that. Uh-huh. They collectively called them Bruce. Yeah. So yeah. one of my favorite parts is when in the podcast, of course, this is fictionalized. I don't know if this is true, but Mark Ramsey's version of it is where Stephen asked the guy, and did you, when you tested him in the water, how did it go? And he's like, great (laughs) because they forgot to test it in the water nope (laughs) didn't even think about it and again that is so identifiable you do this stuff and you're like oh and when you tested it like uh, yeah (laughs) it was it was awesome it just worked perfectly can't wait to do it your fingers are crossed behind your back Well, and it's a shame they didn't test it because, boy, did they have problems once (laughs) they put those things in the water. Oh, yeah, it was awful. (laughs) They they sank. You had the problem of literally they just sank. And then when they figured out how to get them up and to try to make them work, they just had so many malfunctions. And by the way, if you want to learn more, we recommend the podcast Inside Jaws. It's very good. Mark Ramsey Media, mm, definitely. Very good. But the way they tell it in the podcast, you get that sense of it was just like a daily thing. Well, (laughs) not working today. Okay, what are we going to do instead? Um, So it was a huge ordeal trying to get these sharks to function. But we're going to talk about later how that ended up in many ways being a helpful thing. But in this case, it it definitely caused the problem of delaying their filming schedule. Remember, they were approved for 55 days. Mm -hmm. They ended up taking 159 days to film because of all these different issues. The crew members, some of them, started calling the film flaws. (laughs) (laughs) Steven Spielberg sometimes started calling the special effects team the special defects department. (laughs) I mean, it was bad. So these sharks not working caused not just the problems, you know, and what are we going to do today and how do we fix these sharks? But it was a lot of money. Yeah, it is. It was a lot of time. You have people committed for 55 days and you're like, oh, surprise, we're going to make it 159. You've got problems. Yeah. We don't know when we're going home. Right. So the sharks, one technical issue, but they had other problems as well. This is something that they mentioned again in the podcast. At one point, the boat that they were on, the Orca, sank unexpectedly during filming. Oh, that's when the the sound people like, forget the actors, save the sound equipment, (laughs) save the actors. I love it. But it did. Their cameras got soaked. They thought they were going to lose all of the footage. This is disturbing because this is a lot of work. This is a lot of time. This is a lot of money. Yes. So they had to spend money. They flew the film to a lab in New York and they were able to save it. But this is the kind of thing they were dealing with, just these unexpected things that you would never predict. Mm -hmm. 
Another unexpected issue, the scene where they think they've caught Jaws. These local fishermen, they went out there, they set out to find the shark. (laughs) The tiger shark. Yes, yes. And so they find the shark and they're all convinced that they found it. And so, of course, for the filming, they needed a shark. Yeah, they need a real shark. Yes. So do you remember what happened? Well, I remember, again, I'm going from the podcast. I remember that they couldn't find one locally. They had Mm -hmm. to go and, and they hired these people to go catch a fish and they caught it and they thought, well, we're just going to put it on a plane and put it on ice and fly it over here. And, and apparently you can't check a shark onto American <laughs> Airlines or Delta. They won't let you do that. So they had to charter a plane, go get this shark. And then by the time that shark ended up back on the film set, he was so rank yes. that he stank to high heaven. Yes. And and then one of the trivia on IMDb said that his intestines had all like settled down by his mouth. So even more stink mm-hmm. was going on. Yes. And there, in one of the shots, because I knew this, there was a fly that landed on that shark like in the film I'm like oh he was disgusting and there's a fly already like yum yum <laughs> so I thought Yuck. that it's so gross he smelled so bad yeah think about if you were like an extra I mean, oh. you, you, yeah I need you to like stand here by no. the shark for like Poor eight Richard hours Dreyfus. a day in the hot sun yeah <laughs> but yes you you nailed it you have a great memory they said not only was that shark decomposing and smelling bad but I remember they talked about how they would have to paint and touch it up all the oh, time gross. because because it was literally decomposing. decomposing. Yeah, it was awful. Another challenge. Now this would seem minor, I'm sure, to the film crew, but if you were one of the actors, this would be an issue. They experienced fatigue and sunburns and seasickness because they were doing so much out on, on the ocean, you literally. Know, that's one thing that I noticed with the actors is I expected them to look a whole lot more sunburned than mm-hmm. they did. So they must have really been protecting doing the actors. Some, yeah. mm-hmm. But you could see it. Like once I thought about it, yeah. there were different parts where I was like, oh, it's kind They're of showing burned. on mm-hmm. Like especially Roy Scheider, I think, is who I noticed it with yeah. the most. Now, Steven Spielberg had a great quote that I loved, kind of reflecting on all of these issues and challenges. Here's what he said many years later. I was naive about the ocean, basically. I was pretty naive about Mother Nature and the hubris of a filmmaker who thinks he can mm-hmm. conquer the elements was foolhardy. I was too young to know I was being foolhardy when I demanded that we shoot the film in the Atlantic Ocean and not in a North Hollywood tank. But had I to do it all over again, I would have gone back to the sea because it was the only way for the audience to feel that these three men were cast adrift with a great white shark hunting them. Yes, yes, absolutely. I agree with him. Yeah. I think knowing what he knows now, he would still go back and redo it because it made the film. It you just really can tell did. when it's in a tank. Absolutely. You can just tell, especially back in that day. Yeah. I mean, the setting was half the story. It was a character. Know? Yeah. You. It really... The wind, you cannot... Seeing the wind, that was one of the things I was actually very impressed with because having worked with sound Mm -hmm. and sound is such a pill. I saw that wind whipping and I thought, how did they get such clear dialogue or did they go back and ADR all of this dialogue to make it sound so good? Either way, that's really good. Mm -hmm. But you can't fake ocean breezes. Right. You know, when their hair is blowing like that, you know, they are in the authentic place. Yeah. And it just gave you such a sense of their isolation Uh and the danger that they were in. Even on the beach. I'm talking when they were still on the beach and all the people oh, around. Good point. Yeah, they're yeah. all talking to each other. And you see that wind whipping their hair, you know, this mm-hmm. is real. Yeah. You can't fake that. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, before we move on to the second problem they experienced while trying to make Jaws, why don't we take a quick break? Let's do it.
And we are back. So a second challenge was finding the right cast because who they originally had in mind to do this film is not who they ended up with. In fact, again, we'll go into more detail about this later, but even the way the characters played out in the book and their original versions of the screenplay are not who they turned out to be in the ultimate version of the film that we get to see nowadays. I think I remember saying that when Spielberg first read the book that he was rooting for the shark. Everybody was so unlikable. Yeah. The movie is very, very different from the book is what I've heard. Really? I haven't read the book. And I haven't either. So I found where Steven Spielberg had given an interview with Entertainment Weekly and he had spoken a little bit in that interview about mm-hmm. some of his casting choices. So I pulled a little bit from Stephen himself and then also from some other sources. But regarding the leads, here are a few of the pieces of trivia that came up. In that interview, Stephen said, quote, my first choice for Matt Hooper was always Richard Dreyfus. Oh, cool. He's the one person I got. But what's interesting is in some of the other articles, they mentioned other actors that actually were considered for that role of Hooper. He's the oceanographer that mm-hmm. comes in, kind of the young, wealthy, yes. yeah, kind of a, a little, you know. He says, are you a little rich? cocky. <laughs> yeah. How much money do you have? You mean me or the family? <laughs> right. It's right. like, what? <laughs> yeah. So one of the other actors that was specifically mentioned that they thought at one time was going to do that role was Jan Michael Vincent. At the time that this movie was being cast, he was kind of an it person in Hollywood. He was young. Mm-hmm. He was fit. He was mm-hmm. very kind of handsome model. He's got a cool name. Yeah. And so think about it. He, he played more of the action hero types. I can't think of any of his movies off the top of my head, but not the Dreyfus character. You mm-hmm. know, Richard Dreyfus was not the he just looks like a normal lead, guy. You know, action man. Right. Jan Michael Vincent would have been a different guy. Gotcha. He would have been a different character. More matinee idol. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, for Martin Brody, who ends up, of course, being played by Roy Scheider, the studio was pushing Charlton Heston at first. Yes, I recall this. Do you remember what they said about him? Well, they said because he had been in so much other stuff, Spielberg said, again, my paraphrasing from memory, is that he was he had just saved the world in Airport 74, Airport something, and he had saved the world in a couple other films, and he said if we had him play it, then the audience is going to know that it's going to turn out okay. And he didn't want the audience to know for sure that this guy was going to win. It needed to be more of a surprise. Yeah, I like that. In fact, Stephen was even concerned actually about Roy Scheider because Roy had just come out of the French Connection and apparently had done a really good job. And so Stephen wondered if even he was a little bit too much of a big name Mm. or a little too polished. Mm. But he did decide to give him a chance Mm -hmm. and was very impressed with him because this is something that came up a lot in the different sources was, and, and Carl Gottlieb talked about this a lot, they really wanted the Chief Brody to be the everyman. Oh, yeah. He needed to be relatable. He needed to be flawed. He needed to be a man of principles, but he needed to be the everyman. I loved his performance. Are we going to talk about the the movie like separately about what we liked about that? Is that going to be a separate section? Yes. Okay, then I will hold my, my thoughts on that. That, you know, in fact, that's how we'll end our first part of this episode with sharing our thoughts about the movie. Okay, perfect. So for Quint, Spielberg said that first they wanted Lee Marvin, but Mm. Lee Marvin turned it down. And then their second choice was a man named Sterling Hayden, who I actually don't even know. But apparently he was somebody who fished and they thought he could be authentic. And so they, they offered it to him. 
He turned it down. Mm. Then the Jaws producers, David Brown and Richard Zanuck, suggested Robert Shaw because they had seen and made actually the Sting movie with him. Yes, he's so good in that. Mm, I haven't seen it. Oh, you got to see that one. Okay. That's going to be a great... Every time we do something, I'm like, that'd be a great episode. Yeah, that's yeah. a good movie. He must have been a really accomplished guy. When you think about the mm-hmm. fact that he was such a good actor, and have we mentioned already that he was a novelist and a playwright as well? No, we haven't mentioned it yet. Okay. Yes, well, but he was. And we're not positive, but in we we both recall but did not write down that we think that inside Jaws that they said he was a Pulitzer Prize winner. That's what I recall. But we cannot find any evidence of it just Googling or searching his mm-hmm. biography. So don't hold us to that one. Don't hold us to that one, but we think maybe. And if you guys can find it, show it to us. But I, I think he was very accomplished. Right. Yeah. Which of course his son inherited that genius, right. it sounds like. Yeah. Well, one of the other things that they mentioned that was a challenge with Robert Shaw was the fact that he was in a little bit of trouble with the IRS. Yeah. And so he could only work so many days. If he went over, then he would get in trouble, have to pay some fines. So it mentioned in several articles that on days when he was not filming, they would fly him to Canada so that he was out of the country. And That's a lot of money too. Yes. I mean, the expenses skyrocketed. They went so far above budget on this movie, but they would fly him to Canada so that he would not be counted as, you know, working in the U.S. And I seem to recall from the podcast, check me on this, didn't they mention that he put in the contract that the company would have to pay the expenses if he went over as well? I don't remember. Seems like they mentioned that. Okay. We'll have to check it if we do a a re-listen. Now, they have their leads. They went ahead and went with these three guys. But another problem was that Robert Shaw was a heavy drinker. Yeah. We're going to talk in our next part, uh, part two, about a couple of specific examples where his drinking came to play Mm -hmm. in some of the interactions, some of the shooting that they did. But one thing that it did lead to that we'll mention right now, it it had a bit of a role in his clash with his co-star Richard Dreyfuss. Yeah, they they did not necessarily get along. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Yeah. Do you remember what anything from the podcast about that? Well, okay. There's a couple things. Are you first of all? Are you going to talk about the Mrs. Brody casting controversy? Like that was mentioned oh, in the podcast. Sure that. Okay. So I I cannot again. I did not take notes when I listened to the podcast because I was doing other stuff. But in the podcast Inside Jaws, what they were talking about is that Steven Spielberg was obviously trying to cast this, and he had a mentor that he adored. Cannot remember his name. I'm very sorry. The mentor mentor calls him is like, Hey, Steven, my wife is an actress. And you know, you I know you're looking for Mrs. Brody, and she really wants a part. And I kind of promised it to her. And he in he said, um, Oh, okay, I think I've got this backwards. His mentor called second. And then I believe the one of the producers called him first and said, My wife really wants to play it. Hey, I promised it to her. Is that okay? <laughs> and he said, Sure. And then his mentor calls and he's stuck. He's like, What am I going to do? Right? They end up saying for like airport 74, like add another passenger, make it airport 75 <laughs> and so the the producer's wife gets that and then the mentor's wife gets mrs brody and that's how we ended up with mrs brody don't know if that's true but that was a very entertaining story so. and shows a little bit of that insight into yeah. how hollywood works yeah where you can which she did a great job i'm sure the other lady good. would have been good too but yeah that's yeah. that was that was that now as far as the other what did you ask me the other question was uh what do i remember about what well they talked in in several articles and also of course on the podcast about the conflict between robert shaw who played Quint mm-hmm. and Richard Dreyfus, who mm-hmm. played Hooper. And so anything stand out to you from, from those? Yes. What I think I remember is he was just very belligerent with him, mm-hmm. but it also helped their characters. Now, yes. I don't endorse this. I don't endorse that kind of behavior, but a lot of that animosity 
came through on the film. I believe one of the things I read on IMDb said that Shaw once expressed, I wish I could quit drinking. So to the horror of everybody, Dreyfus just took his drink and like threw it in the ocean. He's like, there you go. <laughs> so <laughs> hot again. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but that's pretty funny. That and, is pretty funny. And I thought one of the most moving things, again, from the podcast Inside Jaws is when Dreyfus was in Ireland many, many years later and Robert Shaw's granddaughter came up and talked to him and he was very kind mm-hmm. about Robert Shaw. So it sort of felt full circle that he was able to just kind of forgive him and what he put him through. But it again... Don't endorse being mean, but they both gave a really, really great performance. They really did. Yeah, I agree with with what you said. I think your point about how they were able to make it work for them Mm -hmm. in terms of actors and their characterization, I think that was a really great point. It did sound as though Robert was a little bit of the aggressor Mm -hmm. based on, I'm making some inferences here, guys, but based on what I read, it sounded like they were both a little bit like their characters. Richard Mm -hmm. Dreyfuss was a little cocky. He was up and coming. Hollywood liked him. He was getting some good roles. He went from this to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And he came off American, American Graffiti. Graffiti. Yeah. yeah. So he was he was a little cocky. A little hot stuff. Yeah. And so Robert Shaw was a little gruff. He I was... wonder if it was part of his... I wonder if Robert Shaw did it on purpose. Do you know what I mean? Because he knew he needed to be this antagonistic person. And because he's been in this longer, maybe he's... And again, I am just... <laughs> Wildly in my armchair, flailing my right. arms. I wonder if he thought, "Well, this cocky little kid, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show him what acting is like. I'm gonna bring him down a peg I'm or two. I'm gonna bring him down yeah. a peg or two, and I'll, I'll show you what it's like to be on a Hollywood set. Don't know. Yeah. I like that. I like that story better than he was just a mean man, right? And you know, how much did the drinking come yeah. into play? Yeah. Who knows? I think in one of the trivia, it said he was a perfect gentleman unless he was drinking. Mm. And there you go. It did talk though about how. Robert Shaw would belittle him, would talk to him rudely, Mm -hmm. uh, tried to humiliate him. For example, one story that came up several times was that Robert Shaw tried to kind of tease and goad Richard Dreyfuss into doing ridiculous things like climbing the ship's mast and jumping from it into the sea. No, I'm not. No, I don't care. So no. So they would they pushed at each other. Mm -hmm. They pushed at each other a lot. But again, we're gonna talk in our next part two episode about how the screenwriter Carl Gottlieb was actually able to use that even as he was working on the script. So Ah. this worked not just for the actors, but it actually worked for the screenwriters as well. Cool. So that brings us, I think, to a good place to kind of pause part one and go ahead and do our armchair psychologist. Ashley, I thought maybe we could just share some of our impressions from the beginning of the movie, some of those initial things that struck us. And then sure. we'll save, you know, some of our- um, The meat. The meat, <laughs> yes, for part two. Sound good? Sounds good to me. Armchair psychologist. Okay. Well, I actually took notes while I was watching it. So the first thing I wrote down is the music makes this. Mm. It's the mm-hmm. first thing that you hear. John Williams, he did a, a phenomenal job. And if you don't mind, I'm yeah. going to jump in. You're playing yeah. about the music making yes. it. Yes. I want to follow up on that. When John Williams brought the score to Steven Spielberg, he thought it was a joke at first. I, I bet that he did because it's so simplistic. You would think, no, no, really. That is exactly right. He thought it was very simplistic. There was a quote from him where he said, I expected to hear something kind of weird and melodic, something tonal, but eerie, something of another world, almost like outer space under the mm-hmm. water. Mm-hmm. And what he played me instead with two fingers on the lower keys was, da-dum, mm-hmm. da-dum, 
Mm-hmm. And at first I began to laugh. He had a great sense of humor and I thought he was putting me on. Then when John Williams assured him he was serious, he played it a few more times. Steven Spielberg said that's when it clicked. Quote, it suddenly seemed right. And John found the signature for the entire movie. And so the composer offered a few of his thoughts about it. Here's what he said. You could alter the speed of this, I don't know what this word means, but ostinato. Oh, I don't know. Any kind of alteration, very slow and very fast, very soft and very loud. There were opportunities to advertise the shark with music. There are also opportunities when we don't have the music and the audience has a sense of absence. They sense the absence because they don't hear the da-dum because you've conditioned them to do that. Mm. And he pointed out that that led to some of the biggest scares in the film, Mm. such as when the absence of the music cue leaves the viewer shocked when suddenly the shark pops up out of the water. Mm. One last comment from Spielberg was he literally said, I think the score was responsible for half the success of that movie. Yeah, I think so too. I remember this is totally off topic, but I remember that Audrey Hepburn said that when she saw Breakfast at Tiffany's with the score, she said this is what makes this film mm. the moon river and it's, it is so essential music is so essential it, it sets is. a mood it sets the emotion it sets the tone yeah. yes so important this is all going to be very truncated because it's just as i was making notes uh one thing that i loved about the way steven spielberg told this story is i love how he moves the camera in our mm. opening sequence you see all the teenagers and we start at one end and we move through the teenagers we see everybody's face it's a pan across and then we get to the girl at the very end she's our main character of this particular scene so I like Mm -hmm. how he just shows here's the harmonica player here's how everything's going he does such a good job about setting a scene and showing you what's going on my next point is that that actress really had to sell that first attack oh yeah she did she really did and I know I I don't know if our audience knows but it's fairly well known trivia that they had weights tied to her feet and they were I believe pulling on them and she did not know at what point they were going to pull on those weights and I saw on my trivia I was reading on INDB that the way she had that gurgling is she went back and they tilted her head back and they poured water on her mouth to get that you know that kind of noise that is asking a lot from an actress well I'm sure it was <laughs> it was okay but it was yeah. just that ADR of that yes. panic oh my god and then what you were saying bringing her dragging her back and forth yes. really scared you when oh, you it first did. saw it it did okay so I'm gonna do a couple more and then we can talk about how we feel about the beginning of it maybe we can save the rest mm-hmm. for our next part. So something else that I thought was super cool is when Brody gets that first phone call that's telling him about her death. Yes. What you notice is that he's talking on the phone. In the background, his kid comes in and he's got blood on his hand. Yes. So the first blood actually happens, well, the girl, but then we see the blood on the little kid. And I thought that is just so haunting and Mm -hmm. so, so much of a foreshadow. I love that. You know, that's the thing with Steven Spielberg, that intentionality. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it's so interesting, Carl Gottlieb, I know we've mentioned him 10 times now, guys, but remember, he's the one who wrote the Jaws log that we mm-hmm. we said was kind of the ultimate source for everything. And of course, he's this one of the screenwriters giving credit for the film. In his interview, he talked about the fact that this was supposed to be a popcorn movie. He used that phrase probably 15 times in different sources or in his interviews. But Steven Spielberg, this was not just a fluff thing for him. Mm-hmm. This was mm-hmm. not just some light fare. 
he was so intentional yeah. with everything. And that's from, one of the things I yeah. love about Spielberg is that my next point was he does such a good job of showing normal before mm. disaster strikes. Yes. Just, oh, yes. Yeah, this is the normal. And now how are we going to take them outside of their normal? And that's one of the reasons I admire him so much as a filmmaker because I know he didn't write this stuff. I know he didn't write the movies, but it feels like these little bitty moments that I feel like are his signature just add that next level. There's a moment where Richard Dreyfus comes to the house and he comes with a wine bottle, two wine bottles, and he sits down and he just says, is anybody going to eat that? And he pulls the plate over <laughs> and he starts eating the food and they all just kind of laugh at him. And it's such a normal thing. Yeah. At the very, I'm skipping ahead because this is part of my point. Later on, when Dreyfus is about to go down into the ocean, Roy Scheider just points at him at his glasses and he takes off his glasses and he puts them in his mouth and he's just fiddling with it mm -hmm. while he's holding his glasses in his mouth. And I thought that is just such a regular human behavior. I love yeah. it. It makes everybody seem so real to me. Which again is why it's so terrifying because you put yourself in it. Instead mm -hmm. of sitting back thinking, I'm watching these people, you are just sucked right into it with them. Yes. Yeah. He is so good at humanizing them. That's a great point. I love your attention to the the technical aspects and how you notice things like camera angles yes. and shots. That's so cool. Well, that's just, that's because that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the way that Steven, we're on a first time basis. <laughs> I'm interested in Steve. The, Steve. Steve he now. likes to be called Steve. <laughs> I love the way that he makes film, especially early on. I haven't seen a lot of his more recent stuff, but mm -hmm. I, I love his early, the everyman. I love that in both this show and also in Jurassic Park, the parts that he, the ones that he did the first, the first two, we know he did those, but especially the first one that's everybody knows. That's one of my favorite movies ever. And I love how he liked to cast people that weren't stars. Yes. Cause that helped the every man of it. You could mm -hmm. slip yourself in there and you could see yourself through their eyes. And that's what I did with the little girl with Lex. I was her age. Mm -hmm. I slipped myself right in there. It wasn't Christina Ricci who I knew. Right. It was Ariana Richards that mm -hmm. I didn't know. I could put myself in her place. Right. So, Candy, give me a little preview. What are we going to talk about in part two? Ooh, we have got a lot of good stuff coming up okay. in part two. You might say this will be the toothier part. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, really. We're going to talk about all of the script changes. We're going to okay. get into some of the anecdotes. Okay. One super important part is the telling of the USS Indianapolis oh, yes. story. We're going to get into that. Yes. And then, of course, you and I will share some of our impressions from the latter part of the film and why we think it turned out to be the success that it was. So mm. lots of great stuff coming up in part two. Very good. So who are we going to cheers today? Well, I think we have to cheer Steven Spielberg, right? Yes, I mean, the man that made this happen. And maybe a little bit to Bruce too. He can get a, he can get a little, <laughs> a little tiny cheers, but mostly cheers to Steven. I love it. Cheers. Hey everybody, are you liking the tea we're serving? If you do, why don't you head over to Apple Podcasts or some other podcatcher of your choice and leave us a rating and review. You know what it does? It helps us be able to serve you some more hot steaming tea. Thanks guys. This episode of Scandal Water contains adult themes and descriptions of violence. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. 
Hello, Ashley. Hello, Candy. I am excited. We are back for part two of our episode on Jaws. Mm -hmm. Back in this theme of Jaws and Jurassic, Steven Spielberg, Summer Blockbusters. Yes, I like this theme. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> so about Jaws, to kind of yes. get us back into it, I was wondering, Yes, it's a scary movie. Yes, it is. It is a suspenseful, scary movie. What do you think was the scariest part? Okay. I have kind of an unconventional answer for this. I think the thing that I heard was the scariest, the biggest jump scare was when that person's head popped out of the boat. And because I knew that was coming, I wasn't as scared. But I imagine that when I saw it the first time, I would have been scared of that. Okay. So my answer from re-watching it is this, the scene on the beach where Brody is watching the people and he's the only one that knows that shark is out there and everybody is playing and they're having a great time and they're all jumping around and he looks in the suspense and he's wondering, he's scanning the crowd. And I was like, Oh, is this the part where the little boy gets eaten? Because I couldn't quite remember. So I thought, Oh yeah, that's the little boy. And does he get, and then the the dog that disappears, all of that was so suspenseful to me that I think that was the scariest part. And that's so masterful in that we as the audience know something's wrong, but everybody else doesn't. Only mm-hmm. us and Brody know what's going on, and we're in that same quote-unquote boat with him is when's the attack going to happen? Oh, that's such a good answer. You know, and I love the point you made. Again, we talked about this in our last episode, Steven Spielberg's mastery in the yes. way he can manipulate your viewer response yes, and yes, your reactions yes. because he made us feel that helplessness, yes. you know, to be the only person in this massive crowd of people who understands the horror that is coming. Yes. And and what are you going to do about it? Right. And the one shot, which it, according to Inside Jaws, which we spoke about in part one, and we will speak about again, the, the podcast by Mark Ramsey, I believe that Steven Spielberg really admired Alfred Hitchcock. He did. And actually that came up. Yeah. And I admire both of them. So, but I am nowhere near them. But one thing I thought was cool is Steven Spielberg does a Hitchcock shot from Psycho. I believe it's in Psycho and you guys can check me if I'm wrong. On the stairs, he did this new kind of innovative shot where you zoom in the camera at the same time that you pull it out. I forget Mm. how to describe it, but it's on the beach. When Brody sits up, it zooms in on him at the same time it's pulling out. It's got this shot like, oh, he realizes what's happening. And I thought, I still have goosebumps. It just gave me goosebumps everywhere. I just loved that pulling in. Like mm-hmm. it's happening. It's in, we're mm-hmm. in the moment. Okay, here we go. It's happening. And just to follow that down just one more level, what this conversation is making me think about is how he really wanted us to to pull into and to empathize with Brody's perspective. Yeah. Chief Brody really was clearly the protagonist. I mean, you had three leads. Yeah. There are three important men mm-hmm. who are very much sharing ensemble-like the plot of this movie. But I feel that as a director, Steven Spielberg clearly wants us to most closely empathize with Brody because he's the one who is, he's got the moral dilemma. He's the one who overcomes his fear to get in the water. To get in the water. How cool is that? You've got this guy on the beach who's afraid of the water and we never really find out why. Right. Never really find out why. And I made a note when we were watching it, it only takes nine minutes and 10 seconds for danger to enter our hero's world. Wow. Now we know the attack happened, Uh but Brody does not know about what happened to the girl nine minutes that's it i mean that's fast that is fast yeah 
But that's what you do as a writer or as a director. You know, you want to get to the action and the story as quickly as you can. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, what a great way to start. That was fun. So last time when we talked, we were focused on the problems that they had to overcome with the filming. And we talked about how they had those technical challenges, those filming challenges. That was one issue. We talked about how it was a little problematic with the casting, not only finding the right actors, but then also the dynamics between Mm -hmm. some of them, especially Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss. And this time we are going to dig into the issue of the script. We're going to dive in. We're going (laughs) to dive into this problem with the script, which is actually, I thought the most fascinating part. Okay. I love this. So here's what happened just to give this perspective. They were only about three weeks before their production was supposed to start Martha's Vineyard and Steven Spielberg was still not happy with the script. Mm -mm. So here he is, this young director, about Mm -hmm. 26 years old, who has taken on this incredible challenge and he doesn't like the script. Like he's still casting. He doesn't have his cast yet, Yeah, but he doesn't like the script. Yeah, They had given it to Peter Benchley first. They gave him first shot at it because he was- Which makes sense. Yeah, yeah, Obviously, he was the the novelist, but it, it didn't satisfy them. And honestly, as we've said before, the novel ends up being very different from the movie. Some people would say there are some problems with the novel. Really? Some things that people don't love. One thing I should mention is that Peter Benchley actually was inspired to write this based on some experiences he had as a boy because apparently he grew up on Nantucket, south of Cape Cod, and he once read about the appearance off Long Island of this 4,550-pound great white shark. That happened in real life. In real Mm -hmm. life. And it stuck with him. Yeah. And that's what ended up turning into, you know, this fictional novel that he wrote. But when his screenplay didn't really please Steven Spielberg, even after he wrote three drafts of it, Steven Spielberg tried a few other people. One man, honestly, I didn't even catch his name because not a lot happened there. Steven Spielberg still wasn't happy with it. So then it went to a man named Howard Sackler. Howard still did not get it to the place where Stephen was ready to, to film it, but Howard Sackler did something really cool. What did he do? He's the guy who brought in the USS Indianapolis ah, shark attack story. Okay. I found this fascinating. Yeah. So I, I looked this up. Here's a bit of a history. So this tragedy occurred just after this ship, the USS Indianapolis, had completed a high-speed class trip taking parts of the atomic bomb to the Pacific Island of Tinian for the U.S. Air Force. This is the bomb that ends up being dropped on Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. So they were taking these parts. Because it was so classified, like nobody knew about it. Mm -hmm. So when Quint says in his little monologue that they didn't even, you know, report that their ship was missing for quite some time, that was true because Mm -hmm. this was highly classified. So after they had delivered those parts, there were warship was sunk by a Japanese submarine in the early hours of July 30th, 1945. So according to the source that I looked at, there were almost 1,200 sailors and marines on the ship. Mm-hmm. When they were sunk, 300 died. 300 went down with the ship. Okay. So the rest of them went into the water. Okay. After four days in the ocean, only 316 were rescued. Mm. It was the greatest loss of life at sea from a single ship in the U.S. Navy's history. Now, a lot of them died from dehydration, exposure, mm-hmm. saltwater poisoning. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of oil in the water, a lot of petrol. So there were uh, there were a lot of factors, but shark attack was one of the other causes of death. 
In fact, they do believe it was the deadliest attack by this predator that is known. So it was actually a torpedo that took them down and it said the ship sank in only 12 minutes. They were seeping blood into the Mm -hmm. ocean, all the different people who were injured or died. And the ones who were bleeding or in those areas were the first they thought that were attacked by the sharks. They said it was the white tip shark that took many of them. One man who survived told a reporter for the Times Herald back in 2014 how he had looked down under the waves and he would see dozens of sharks, Mm. quote, just swarming around us. Mm. So they started with the dead and the wounded. And then after the sharks had kind of made their way through them, Mm -hmm. as the days progressed, they began to attack the living crewmen who Mm -hmm. were in the water. They are not sure exactly how many were actually eaten by sharks because, again, there were all these other factors that were causing the deaths. But they think it could have been anywhere from 20 or 30 up to 150 of them who died that way. Mm. Yeah. So Howard Sackler, the script writer, was given credit for bringing in this story because he was like, how, why would Quint be so obsessed with getting this shark? He felt like this was a gap. And it was a gap in the novel. Like mm-hmm. even when you read apparently Peter Benchley's version, you, you don't still you don't understand that. And so he saw a need. He wanted some backstory and he found out about this true incident that had occurred. And he decided that would help explain why Quint was so obsessed with mm-hmm. sharks, why he hated them so much. He decided that he would give this backstory to Quint that he had survived mm-hmm. this attack. And just think about it. That in when this came out in 1975, that was only 30 years after the real incident had happened. So that would sort of be like if a a modern film, not quite 30 years, but if a modern film had someone who was the the Twin Towers, you Mm -hmm. know, in 2001, that's not that long ago for us. It would not have been that long ago for the 1975 audience. And I'm going to jump ahead and say that's one of the reasons why one thing that I was kind of disappointed in is when Quint dies, he just dies. Mm -hmm. He's not heroic. It doesn't feel full circle. He doesn't go down fighting this shark he just gets eaten you know i do but you know i felt like that was a statement i you felt think so? i do i think i think it was because quint let his obsession overtake him uh. he wasn't as heroic or as noble i think as say chief brody was mm-hmm. he started making some really bad decisions yeah he did he was so obsessed with that shark that you know he destroyed the the ship the ship's radio he destroyed the ship i mean yeah. he led to that their downfall yeah he did i just felt like oh and, and he he survived it the first time, but he still, I guess, maybe another thing, he was destined to be... He needed end. that dramatic irony mm-hmm. to die that way. He escaped it the first mm-hmm. time, but he ended up dying mm-hmm. from a shark attack. You know, I love your point about the fact that it was really pretty recent. And if you had people watching Jaws in 1975 who had knowledge of or even, you know, personal memory friends or, or someone they knew who was associated with that U.S. Indianapolis tragedy, mm-hmm. you know, that would make it very personal. But on the flip side, sharks are such a prevalent part of our lives now. But back in 1975, they were not. No. And just think if some of the family came to see this that had had family that had, if there was that many men that died in there, you would possibly have people that were like, yes, mm-hmm. this is really what happened. And yeah. they could have identified with it there. For sure. But I think the vast majority 
majority of people oh, yeah. Vast had majority. no knowledge mm-hmm. of any mm-hmm. of this. So the shock, you know, hearing that story, mm-hmm. I mean, this was very new and novel. I think I, I think it's just reminding me of, you know, we've got everything from Sharknado now to yeah. all, you know, it's it's everywhere, right? Yeah. We have we have shark weeks on, yeah. on Discovery. You know, Discovery channels. But back then, this was not something that was huge and something prevalent. And so to hear stories like this told by Quint, to have a movie about a shark like this, it was just something that was so new and horrific. And that's why it's unknown. hard to repeat it. Yeah. That's why it's hard to repeat the success of something like this because you can never be new and novel again. Right. The first Jurassic Park, you can't repeat that. Right. Because that's the first one. That's such a good point. Well, to finish this out, how Howard Sackler, according to Carl Gottlieb, the the screenwriter, actually plagiarized just a little bit. He apparently pulled some of the wording directly from some other source that had talked about the USS Indianapolis, but he was given credit for being the person who put this into the script, but it wasn't ready to go. This speech ended up being pretty long and Steven knew he liked it. Steven Spielberg, he wanted to keep it, but he didn't quite know what to do with it. So he sent it to some of his friends, including George Lucas getting opinions. What do I do with this thing? And so Ian Shaw, Robert's son, and other sources as well. So this is a corroborated across different sources. They give Robert Shaw credit. I think credit. this is so cool. Yes. They give him credit for being the one who really pulled it all together. He took the notes. He took the feedback. He took this original speech that had been written by Howard Sackler, and he went home, he reworked it, and then he came over to wherever Stephen was staying, and I believe Carl Gottlieb was there as well. And he he's basically like, hey, I put this together and, you know, see what you think and performed it for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And that was the version that made it into the film. And if you did not hear part one yet, the reason that's, you know, you would think, oh, an actor just did that. No, he was a playwright and he was a novelist. He knew what mm-hmm. he was doing. Yes, he did. And just to kind of tie the bow and wrap this up, when he did go to perform that on the day of filming, he was drunk. Mm-hmm. We talked last time about his issue with drinking. He was drunk and basically ruined the entire day's shoot. Mm -hmm. They could use very little of it. Mm -hmm. He felt bad. He was professional enough that he realized he had wasted time, cost them money. He, he just knew that this was a bad thing to do. So he came back sober. I believe it was the very next day and nailed it. I think in one take. And it was the version that's in the film. They said they pulled maybe a few shots here and there mm-hmm. from day one, but pretty much everything that made it into the movie is from that second day of filming. And many, many different sources talk about this monologue by Quint as being one of the best performances in yes. film history. Yes, like, it's amazing. Yeah, very powerful. And when I watched it again recently, especially... Especially, I was listening for it. I was mm-hmm. looking for it. And I was struck by, I was by how good it was. I was trying to decide if I could figure out what was day one and what was day two. I, I did the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, are his eyes a little more glassy in this scene? <laughs> okay. Well, let's move back now. So we gave credit to Howard Sackler for adding that USS Indianapolis scene. And we kind of followed that out. But Basically, that's the last thing that that we kind of give credit to Howard Sackler because the script is still not where Steven Spielberg wants it. So he turns to his friend, Carl Gottlieb. 
Carl was an actor who also, of course, was an accomplished writer. He was on the writing staff. I mean, he'd done many other things, but one of the notable things was that he was on the writing staff along with Steve Martin of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour on CBS. Mm -hmm. And he wrote for a lot of other very important shows of that time, including The Odd Couple. So he and Stephen crossed paths a lot of times because they shared the same agent and they had become friends. Stephen had even cast Carl in some of his TV projects, some small roles here and there in different movies or different things. And he actually had already asked Carl to play the newspaper editor, Ben Meadows in Jaws. Yeah. So Carl was already going to be there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was already associated with the project. He was familiar. And then Stephen reached out to him. He sent him a copy of the script with the word eviscerate written across the title page. So Carl wrote back. He said, this is what he always did. He basically had this really long memo where he outlined everything he thought needed to be done to revise and make this script good. Okay. And he said that, you know, there were two purposes for that. First of all, that would allow Stephen and his production team to decide if they liked, you know, Carl's before he direction. Does the work. Yeah, before he mm-hmm. does the work. But it's also now kind of a record. Mm. Now he knows if he takes on this project, here's what I need to do. I like that. That's yeah. a good idea. So Stephen showed the memo to the other members of the team. They met with Carl. They decided to bring him on. He had no idea what he was getting into. Mm. That's <laughs> always the way it starts. We never know what we were getting into. So it said that within days, Carl was on a plane to Boston with Spielberg, who, again, he is still casting the locals at this time. They have not finished casting. They're three weeks out. Mm. Now, you to put this in perspective, they don't have their entire cast. They have an incomplete script, and their mechanical shark is not working. What is this? One of my movies? <laughs> <laughs> so, so Carl said, the shark was problematic mm. because it ends up, as I think we we hinted at this, but we didn't really get into it in part one, these mechanical problems with the sharks ended up causing huge script issues. Oh. Because if they were going to film and they did not have a working shark, they had to figure out what to do. Okay, This changed plot lines. This changed a day's script. So what ended up happening, you've already alluded to this, actually, to kind of look at it from a broader perspective. In general, because of these shark problems, they realized they had to approach the use of the mechanical sharks in a different way. Rather than showing the shark all the time, this is where they called on what they had learned from kind of the old sci-fi horror films, especially one that they love from 1951 called The Thing from Another World. And in that particular movie, the writers and producers would cause suspense without showing the creature. That's really smart. They purposefully held off showing the creature in that movie until the very end. So they decided to model a little bit after what they had learned from that old movie. Carl said, quote, we can intimate the shark. We can show terrible things that the shark does and that will build suspense. We concentrated on showing the effects of the shark when we didn't have the shark. It was even that much more impressive when he finally appeared. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And by the way, that was one of the things I noticed that you were looking at timestamps. I did the same thing. Last time I rewatched it, it was not until 62 minutes basically into the movie before we saw the shark for the first time. Wow. When they actually used one of those mechanical bruises. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think I remember reading an article where it was for Jurassic Park. It was 45 minutes before you saw like the first danger from a dinosaur. Ah, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The master of suspense. Yep. So something else 
that Carl did as the screenwriter was he cut some of the subplots that were in the novel. For example, the novel had a love affair between Chief Brody's wife and Matt Hooper. Ew, I know. no. Can I like them imagine? being friends. No. And they said one of the reasons was, again, they had Jan Michael Vincent ah. in mind back when Harold Sackler had the script. Mm-hmm. And Howard Sackler, excuse me. And so in their minds, it would have fit better. Mm-hmm. But with a different actor, thinking about their cast yeah. made them rethink some of their I'm plot I'm not even lines. thinking of that. I'm thinking of, I like how good of friends that Brody and Hooper were. Yes. And they wouldn't have been that good of friends. No, they would have hated each other. Yes. And another point was, here's the quote from Carl. When we saw Lorraine, Gary, Dreyfus, and Scheider interacting, these were three lovely people. Mm -hmm. We said, we're not going to show her cuckolding Brody with this dweeb. (laughs) So like they realized they wanted Brody to be a stronger character. They didn't want the infidelity, the betrayal. And and as you said, they didn't want to mess up the interactions between the three of them. They have enough to worry about. Yeah. So that was a huge change that Gottlieb made. He he literally changed some of some of the characters, some of the plot. Another thing that he was given credit for was adding some of the quirky humor that we mm. now see in the movie and especially for bringing more depth to the characters. Mm-hmm. This is what we said in part 1. He made them more like everybody instead of caricatures. That yes. was his actual quote. He yes. said he was proud of making them more like everybody instead of caricatures. And I know mm-hmm. we talked quite a bit last time about humanizing and making yes. these characters real. I like even in one of the opening when he goes to get all the paint at the store, he knocks over the paintbrushes. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, that's something yeah. I would do if I was nervous. You just yes. It's just little bitty things like that. What about the, in terms of the humor? I'm thinking of that scene where... They compare scars. Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah I love that. I love that. Some of that was improvised by the actor. Oh, though. I love it. I love how, how they're, and that's, that looks how it's so good to see Shaw and, and uh, Richard Dreyfus actually getting along. Yes. And then I love how the, they're comparing their big manly scars. And then you see Brody just like <laughs> lift up his shirt and he's got a little like appendix scar and he never says anything about it. He's just like, I don't have anything. I thought that was adorable. Yes. Yes. I was thinking of another part, which was when Brody was looking out the window in his home, which by the way, what about that view? Right. But he sees his son in the boat and he's yelling at him to get out and the wife is like the voice of reason and the mm-hmm. voice of calm and she's like honey no you know he's fine blah 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 and calms Brody down and then she looks down at the book and sees the picture of, of the, the shark. shark that can like attack the boat and, <laughs> get you know, out the boat. <laughs> and she screams at her kid to get out it was so good but yeah I'm sure I mean I don't know that that specifically was an addition by Carl but I think that's the kind of touch that he added to it. I got one other thing for you. Oh, yeah. Another, I wonder if if this was improvised or I wonder if this is Carl's humanizing touches. I love the interaction between Brody and his son where they're at the dinner table and they're mirroring each other Mm. and he's being so sweet with him and he goes, give me a kiss. Why? Because I need it. You know, it's just, that was so sweet. I loved seeing Mm -hmm. him as a father because then when he's panicked about his kids, you can see that he has a connection with his kids because sometimes the people in these films, the kids are just this afterthought, but you can tell he really cares about about his kids. Yeah. And I love that point because if you were to time it, 
think about how little time we actually see Brody with his family yeah. versus how much time we see him on an ocean or yeah. with these men. So it's I like think two that was movies. right. It was another purposeful thing I think mm-hmm. on Spielberg's part. He had to find a way to show us how deeply he cared about his son and his family mm-hmm. in order for us as viewers to believe that this man who's terrified of water would go get on the ocean and go fight this. Basically, it's a villain. I mean, yeah. it is a shark, but they've they've villainized it. It's mm-hmm. almost a little human mm-hmm. or or personified, I guess I should say. And he didn't want to do it until he got personal when mm-hmm. his son was almost attacked. Yeah. You know, and the, and also the mayor. And that's... the mayor says, my son was out there too, mm-hmm. or my children were out there too. Yep. Yes. Oh, I love all these purposeful moves that, you know, we can see the, the thinking behind them. So back to Carl. This was something I loved. In his interview with Inside Jaws, the podcast that we love, that we love, he talked about how he would literally change the dialogue to reflect the characters because he got to watch them every day or not every day but a lot of times he He was was on set he was with them he saw how they interacted he knew how the characters talked to each other how the actors talked and so he would he would either write it with them in mind or revise it with them in mind so for example he said that watching Brody and his wife those actors how they talk to each other he would picture that as he would write some banter for them Mm -hmm. or the way that Dreyfus and and Quint would be talking to Mm -hmm. each other but I thought the most impressive thing was that Carl had to basically pivot on a dime and adjust things almost on a daily basis. I'm super impressed with him. I, it's, it's, I can't imagine the stress. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we talked about Steven Spielberg needing celery to be able to sleep and how he I don't so think much Carl anxiety. was sleeping. Right. <laughs> because Carl was. He would be going home and writing what was going to be filmed the next day. And then he would think he had like a direction and then they would suddenly be like, oh, sorry. Shark's not working. Can you change this? And I don't know if we pointed this out, but he was, according to the podcast Inside Jaws, he was living with Spielberg yeah. during this time. So he's just across the hall and mm-hmm. he gets immediate feedback. Like, nope, that's not going to work. Right. Oh, I thought this was a really great example just to show what life would be like for this man. So this is just one example. In the scene where Hooper is supposed to go underwater in that shark cage, because remember he was supposed to be trying to like put some kind of chemical or, or medicine mm-hmm. into the shark by kind of stabbing it into his skin. Mm-hmm. Well, they were trying to make it authentic. And so they had a second unit of people shooting footage of real sharks in Australia. Mm-hmm. And so to make, and by the way, to make the sharks seem bigger, the filmmakers used a shrunken shark cage and they had a Hooper stunt double played by a four foot nine ex jockey wearing a wetsuit. And, and this is one of my favorite parts of the podcast. So keep going on your story and I'll say the line up. Oh, okay. It's so funny. Okay. So they said in the original script, just as in the novel, Hooper's supposed to be killed there. No way. Yeah, he's supposed to die. Oh, no. The shark bites through the cage. He's supposed to die. Oh, no. But the Australia crew had captured this amazing footage that showed a great white attacking an empty shark cage and Spielberg wanted to use it. So they rewrote the scene. They made Carl rewrite it to let Hooper escape just because they wanted to use that footage, <laughs> Dreyfus, Richard Dreyfus, got to live and make it to the end of the movie. That's great. That's the kind of thing where they're just like suddenly like, hey, Carl, he's not going to die. And now he's finishing the movie. Write him in, please. Oh, that's funny. So in the podcast, and I, I don't mean to mock this poor man's fear, but the jockey guy, apparently when he was in it, like the, the shark really, I forget the, the specifics, but as he's getting ready to step into the water, the real shark like attacks. And if he had stepped in, it would have literally eaten oh my this gosh, fella. That's terrifying. 
So they said he just very quietly went in to the down into the boat and he closed the door behind him. They go up there like, hey, I forget his name. Hey, buddy, you coming out? And he's like, I'm not coming out. <laughs> it's just very quietly. I'm not coming out. <laughs> I think I would do the same thing. It's just like I was almost I was this close to being eaten by a shark. No, 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 thanks. So that's also Done. maybe why Hooper got to live because the guy said, I'm not <laughs> I'm not coming out. <laughs> I cannot imagine. Oh, okay. Well, we've made it through all three of our challenges with the filming of Jaws now, actually. Before we talk about some of the successes and more reactions to the movie, why don't we take a quick break? Let's do it. So we've spent quite a bit of time talking about the challenges, but now let's talk about some of the successes. Oh, yeah. Time and time again, we hear Jaws referred to as the first ever summer blockbuster, and that title is official. I did not know this, but if you look in the Guinness Book of World Records, it is listed there. Steven Spielberg's Jaws is considered, according to Guinness, as the first summer blockbuster. Some of the reasons were not only did people line up around the block to see the movie, but it was the first first film to ever earn $100 million at the box office. And in fact, it remained on top for two years until Star Wars Mm -hmm. was the one who dethroned it in Mm -hmm. 1977. In fact, have you seen this? Spielberg took Took out that ad, which is so cute. It has the picture of R2-D2 holding this fishing pole with Jaws Jaws caught on it. We'll put that on our Facebook and Instagram pages. But it opened on June 20th, 1975 and was an immediate hit. It won 14 straight weekends at the box office. Something interesting was that they marketed it in a different way. They said before Jaws, most of the time studios would open their pictures gradually. They would Mm -hmm. kind of start with major cities and then they would branch out to the suburbs and then the rural areas. And it was kind of like this word of mouth, kind of hoping it was kind of like a wave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But in this case, Universal exec Lou Wasserman was given credit for being the one to start this technique where they kind of saturated the airwaves. They did all this advertising and, and all these promos. And then they let it open across the country simultaneously, they said, which helped to bypass critics in case it was not, you know, received received super well. So Jaws opened in more than 400 theaters, which was an incredible amount of theaters at that time. And they said that the reaction was instantaneous. Some of the people who worked on the show, including Steven Spielberg, would go into theater sometime just to like watch the reactions and the jumps and the screams. It was probably so validating for them, knowing how much, how many problems they had. They were just like, oh, thank goodness people like it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And Carl talks in his interview about this new phenomenon. He said, to his knowledge, it was the first time they really had this idea of repeat viewers, Mm -hmm. especially with the young people. Mm -hmm. He said that most of the time, you know, you'd have this market, like, you know, say 2 million people and they would spend the money that 2 million people would spend at the box office. But he said, this was the first time where you might have 16 million tickets at the box office for those 2 million viewers, because some people were seeing it three and four times. Mm. It it brought in, of course, a lot more money if added to its success. And it just showed you the appeal of this audience. It kind of changed that idea 
idea of the popcorn movie. It gave credibility to this type of film that wasn't seen as being as artistic. It wasn't mm-hmm. seen as being as craftsmanlike or mm-hmm. as skillful. It kind of made it okay to do these suspense movies like Jaws. Just a fun movie. Yeah. So Jaws ultimately grossed more than twice the amount that the second biggest hit of that year, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, brought in. Mm. It was nominated for an Academy Award in the Best Picture category. Didn't win that one, but it did take home three Oscars for Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, and Best Sound. Mm. Steven Spielberg was not nominated. I know. And Shaw was not nominated, although many people thought he should have been. I think he should have been. For his, especially for his performance with that big monologue. Some people speculated it's because it was that popcorn movie, that B movie, that they didn't want to go as so far as to give them the nod for that. But John Williams' score, of course. That seems like a worthy win. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was cool that, have you ever seen, it's in the reruns, those really old Saturday Night Live episodes where they land had the land shark. Yes, yes, yes. That, of course, was inspired by Jaws, <laughs> yes. which is awesome. Knock on the door. Candy Graham. No, you're that land shark. No, I'm not. <laughs> yes. It was so funny. Now, on the flip side, there were some negative effects as well. They said, I don't know that they had hard data, but based on what they observed and what people said, they said beach attendance was very negatively affected by this movie. So. And now this is kind of sad. They said that it was so effective and so scary that even to this day, sharks and especially great white sharks have been demonized, mm. that they are feared, they are misunderstood. There are a lot of misconceptions. Little side note, Peter Benchley, who by the way, passed away in 2006 when he was 65 years of age, oh. he came to regret that he had ever written Jaws. Really? Because of the way that sharks came to be almost attacked, Mm. he became, after a time, a naturalist and a conservationist, and he produced films and television programs about the ocean environment because he was so concerned about some of the things that were happening. Oh. Yeah. I don't know that people, well, I don't know. I guess you could go back to, like, who are you going to blame? The film really brought it. It wasn't just his book. But, yeah, I can see that. I I give them a healthy respect. They, they, I'm not going to go near them. Well, same. Yeah. Here's what his wife told the Associated Press. He cared very much about sharks. He spent most of his life trying to explain to people that if you are in the ocean, you're in the shark's territory. Mm -hmm. So it behooves you to take precautions. Mm -hmm. So that was one regret. Now, to be fair, he really did start it all. I mean, he he did. You know, it said He started the ball rolling. He started the ball rolling. And because of the success of Jaws, they had the sequel. They had Jaws 2. Then, of course, I think they ended up with a Jaws 3. Then they had other Jaws ripoffs, if you want to call it that. Orca, The Deep, Tentacles, Piranha. Lots of things that were kind of inspired Mm -hmm. or seemed to be inspired Mm -hmm. by Jaws started popping up. And then they said this was also one of the first times where they had a lot of merchandising related to the movie. They had t-shirts, posters, toys, lunchboxes. And this was kind of the start of that. And then they said when Star Wars came out two years later, that's when it really exploded. Really took off. Mm -hmm. Yep. So in terms of Steven Spielberg's impact from having directed this movie, of course, this just launched him. Skyrocket. Right. The next thing that he did was Close Encounters. With Richard Dreyfuss. With Richard Dreyfuss. Yep. And I thought this was cool. Carl was asked in that same interview that we've referenced several times, he, he was asked why he thought Steven Spielberg became so, so popular, so acclaimed as a director. And 
he said to be a great director, you really need three qualities. He said you have to have the technical knowledge and ability, the craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. He said you have to be able to see the big picture. You have Mm -hmm. to see what you want, the whole thing end Mm -hmm. in mind, and then, you know, know how to get there. And then he said you also had to have basically, I don't know how to phrase this, I guess. Diplomacy? Diplomacy is a good Mm -hmm. word. You know, political awareness. How do you get along with all the studio execs? Different personalities. Right. How do you get the cast to do what you need them to do? You know, how do you work with people? And he said that most directors have two of the three. There are very few that have all three. And he said Steven Spielberg had all three, Mm -hmm. still does. And that's why he thinks he's maintained, you know, all this time. And then he added that a lot of directors also get brought down by a scandal. Oh. And that Steven... So far. So far. (laughs) Has not had that happen to him. So before we move into our armchair part, Ashley. Yes. I went down a little rabbit trail. Okay. Do you remember I in do. the podcast yep, where I they talked about the, the lady in the dunes? Yes. I had to look it up. And the fact that Stephen King's son is the yes. one that found her on the on the screen? Yes. Tell me what you found fascinating. out. fascinating. Okay. Now, I'm going to say I did not do incredibly in-depth research. So this you is a little a bit deep dive. I didn't do a deep dive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it never gets old. <laughs> But I did a little superficial research, and, and here's what I found. So if you're not familiar with the lady, some magazines call it Lady in the Dunes. Some say Lady of the Dunes. But this was a case where, a very sad case, where this woman, her body was naked and decaying. Her head was almost decapitated. I'm going to have to put a warning on this I, episode. I think you may. Okay. <laughs> Both of her wrists had been removed. Oh, gosh. And she was discovered dead in July 1974 in a cluster of trees near Race Point Beach in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Oh, this is so sad. Her body was found by a young girl who was about nine years old at the time while she was out walking her dog. The woman was lying face down on a green towel and it said it it made it look as though it was a stage because it was as though she was sunbathing. Uh A blue bandana had been tucked beneath her head, which had been bashed in, and it said there was a pair of Wrangler blue jeans, quote, folded up like a pillow. Mm. It said her hair was reddish brown, was in a ponytail, and she weighed between 140, 150 pounds, would have stood about five foot, six inches tall, or maybe five foot eight, somewhere in there. She was described as being fit. They thought she was probably in her mid to late 20s. And one note that the police made was that her teeth, the the work that had been done, would have been worth about $10,000 worth. Well, because there were gold crowns in there. And they commented that it had been done, that dental work had been done in the New York style, whatever that means. Now, this is also disturbing. At the end of her arms, where her hands should have been, were piles of pine needles. And police believed that her hands had been removed to try to prevent identification. There was some blood but they suspected that she had been killed somewhere else days, if not weeks earlier. And again, this retired police chief had a quote where he said she was definitely posed there. She was lying out on a beach towel as if she was sunbathing. Mm. That's a direct quote. Mm-hmm. So this case has been cold for over 40 years. Mm -hmm. And then what brought it back into the spotlight, as you said, was that Joe Hill, who is the son of Stephen King, and he is an author himself who likes to write a lot of ghost stories. Mm -hmm. He put out this theory in August of 2015. It was in a blog post. And then it it came back to national attention in 2018 because of the podcast Inside Jaws. That's what brought it back into a lot of the spotlight because he highlighted it there. Okay. But anyway, Joe Hill's theory was 
He had been watching Jaws, and at about 54 minutes and two seconds into the film, there's this crowd scene on the 4th of July. It's that sequence where they're looking at the big event, and then, of course, the shark appears. Mm -hmm. And he spotted this extra. He sees this fit, young-looking woman with brunette hair wearing a blue bandana, and he said he thought it bore a startling resemblance Mm -hmm. to a composite sketch of that lady. Yeah. And so he wondered, quote, what if the young murder victim no one has ever been able to identify has been seen by hundreds of millions of people in a beloved summer classic and they didn't even know they were looking at her? So in that same post, after he puts out this theory, he does go on to acknowledge lots of problems with his theory. Yeah. He includes some of them. He says, well, she wasn't wearing the same type of Wrangler jeans they found. In the next scene, you see six other women who are wearing a bandana that looks Mm. exactly the same. So okay. he acknowledged this was kind of an far-fetched. Yeah, far-fetched okay. or out there theory is how yeah. he phrased it. But it attracted a lot of curiosity. A lot of people were responding to that. And they made the point. This Jaws production brought in a lot of people. A lot of people drove from everywhere because they wanted to be extras or they wanted to watch the filming. So, you know, the police actually said they were going to check this theory out because maybe. Maybe. The other thing the police said was, you know, anything that brings attention to this, this is a cold case. Yeah. If it'll bring attention, if it might bring new testimony or or get people to think about things that happened and come forward, great, we'll take it. And Mm -hmm. they even put out a, a call for tips. Thought that was fascinating, but in my research, I found out that there is a Massachusetts-based filmmaker who is premiering a new documentary very soon that actually looks into this unsolved murder case. This is a pretty recent thing because in a Cape Cod article written just this past March 20th, it mentioned that they were having screenings of this film at Cape Cinema in Dennis on Friday, April 1st, and in the Provincetown Theater on the April 2nd. So it's they've already been screened it somewhere. IMDb does not say that it has been released yet, but it does say coming soon. There's a page for it. Okay. But anyway, this documentary was produced by a man named Frank Durant, and he said that he focused his investigation on the murder of this unidentified woman. And in the article about this, it says, quote, throughout the interview process, the filmmaker said that one of his main focuses was discerning between fact and fiction surrounding the infamous murder. This producer said there has been a lot of misinformation about about the crime that has spread over the years and he specifically called out Joe Hill's Aww. theory that this victim may have been an extra in the film Jaws. His quote was that the new film disproves the Aww. theory. That's too bad. Yeah. So it sounds like she's still unidentified. She's still unidentified and may have nothing to do with Jaws. Mm. Well, I'm sad that it's not a break in the case. Yes, I agree. I agree. Armchair Psychologist. Okay. Well, I think we're ready for our Armchair Psychologist segment. All right. Simple questions. Actually, two questions. Okay. First of all, I want to hear if you have any more interesting reactions to the second part of the movie. But I also want to know if you have any other thoughts about why it's been so successful and so long lasting in its impact all these years. Well, I think the reason it has been, we've, we've kind of covered this, but to reiterate, the reason I think it has been so impactful and long lasting. First of all, the music. Mm-hmm. I think the music played a huge role in emotionally investing people in the story. I think the characters. Yes. They were real. You could identify with them. They, you felt like you were in this situation with them. And I think the third thing is it was new and novel. Yes. I mm-hmm. think those three things, and just off the top of my head, there may be more, but those, the script, the Carl Gottlieb mm-hmm. script, the characters, new and novel, and the music. All of that was just this perfect combination 
inspiration to make this film. And you can't repeat that. You can't be the first ever again. Yeah. So I think that was just, that was it. To piggyback on what you just said, something we haven't mentioned yet that just came to me. Carl, if you're out there, I hope you, I hope you understand how much we appreciate you because we've, we've certainly Very given, much. given you a lot of shout outs. But he said something else that I thought was really insightful. He, he mentioned that what he thought made this so powerful, one of the many things that made this so powerful was that you had these three really strong characters who were out to do something big and heroic and meaningful, but they couldn't do it by themselves. Oh, yes. It was the cooperation. They were all really strong, wonderfully written men, but they had to work together to Mm -hmm. make it happen because none of them were strong enough to do it by themselves. Yeah. When we were watching it, I I told Brian, there's no way that Quint could have done this by himself Mm because early on he says, I'll do it by myself. And you couldn't have. He could not have handled that. That shark was way bigger than everybody thought it was. And it was just so smart of the screenwriters and Spielberg both to to force that to happen because it was so satisfying because mm-hmm. you had so much hostility or tension, I should say. You had tension between the grizzled, old, primitive man, I think mm-hmm. was how they, he was described at one point, and then the young, cocky, academic guy. Mm-hmm. And then and you the had everyman. the everyman. And then you saw how satisfying it was that all of their skill sets were necessary. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. of them were valuable and we needed each other mm-hmm. to make a little happen. puzzle that fit yeah. together really well. So what is your opinion of why it is so successful? We got Carl's. We got mine. Mm. Well, you've named so many points that I already agree with, and obviously so has Carl. So I'm trying to think of something different to add. Mm-hmm. And what occurs to me is the way that they built suspense mm. by making that shark larger than life. Mm-hmm. They turned it into an epic battle because it was not just a shark. It wasn't just this animal. It was almost representation. It was, yeah, it was almost mythological or something. It was, it was symbolic in some ways. It was huge. It was in some ways you felt like it was evil. It really was a villain or a monster in some ways. And that made you more invested too, because now you are in this battle of good versus evil, life and death, you know, all those things. And you desperately want them to win. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, we've said many times now that you now care deeply about these characters. So you not only want them to win, but you also want them to survive. Right. And they were smart. This is terribly sad, but I wrote in my notes, tip it. You know, you just see the stick. They killed, the shark killed a dog and it killed a little kid. And Mm -hmm. if you want to gain the audience's sympathy and want this thing to go down, those are two things. Because as soon as that dog was gone, I was like, take it down, take him down. I'm not on this shark side anymore. And then the little boy. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And you know what? I'm glad you said that because you made me think of something. I was watching, rewatching with my husband husband who obviously had seen it before as well and he made a comment it was the famous scene where the boy's mother slaps yes chief brody yes which by the way one of the little kind of behind the scenes anecdotes was that she had trouble getting that slap down and she also had trouble holding back and faking it so she was doing full out slaps and she would have to do it again and again and again and that poor guy i think it was like 17 times yeah it was terrible but but my husband kirk made the comment he said i'm so glad they brought that woman in with that smack because he said that little boy got killed yeah. and then they switched to this whole other scene and it was almost like it got lost yes. in the impact and the emotional devastation and he said how smart and powerful it was to bring up that grieving mom and to have her face 
face off with that chief and show how much she held him personally responsible. Although I will say one of my notes is she should have been slapping the mayor. I agree. Because Brody wanted to shut the beaches down and the mayor's the one that said no. But did she know that? No, she didn't. Of right. course she didn't. But I would have been like, oh, this. <laughs> yeah. I would have pointed to the other guy. But I got a cute trivia for you before we keep oh, yeah. going. One of the, the first things I read on IMDb, I won't remember the names of anyone because I read it when I was sleepy. But apparently the lady who played that recently, very recently, four decades later, it said, went into a restaurant where they had the little boy Alex Kitchener sandwich or something. It was like a seafood place. Oh. And so she mentions to them, oh, I played the mother of Alex Kitchener. And How the man cool who owned that? the restaurant came out and it was the kid who played <gasps> Alex Kitchener. And they hadn't seen each other since they made that film. No way. I mean, that's Is a that trivia. Real? I don't know. It's a trivia piece on IMDb. So I'm just repeating what I read. But I thought that was precious. I can't get over that. Yeah. I love that so much. I know. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad you shared that one. If it's not true, don't tell us. <laughs> <laughs> Something else that I remember, and I'm going to have to look up whose production company this is, but have you heard of the production company? That's some bad hat, Harry. <laughs> no. You haven't heard of them? No. I have seen some show where I hear that in this little cartoon of a man, and he goes, that's some bad hat, Harry. And that's a, from a line in this movie, because when he's talking to the man, Chief Brody is talking oh, to the older man. I remember and, this now. Yes. And he goes, that's some bad hat, Harry. Yes. And some person named their production company that's some bad hat harry and they've got a little shark fin in the background and it's completely from that line that? now something else i want to know talk about kind of glossed over like what kirk said that harry is in the water and then when everybody comes out it's almost like harry gets trampled because they pull mm -hmm. him onto the beach and he's still that. laying there and i'm thinking is harry okay mm -hmm. yeah, there's a wide shot and he's just kind of laying i don't know what happened to him that's interesting because i remember thinking the same thing i'm like oh are they going to show us yeah. how he got trampled. stampede, and that's mm -hmm. another death that resulted from mm -hmm. their not But being, nothing ever happened with yeah. that. So when nothing happened, then I assumed he made it. But We're just going to go with that because that's some bad hat Harry is very, very <laughs> sweet. A couple time stamps for you. Richard Dreyfus does not enter the film until 29 minutes. We wow. don't see him for half an hour. Quint takes the job at an hour seven. It is, is like there are two movies. Yes. It's like the whole setup is a movie, yep. and then once those three men get on the ocean, you move into something that's almost like a Hemingway. Yeah. Or a, Moby Dick. Yeah, or a Melville. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep. And I love the head snap up, another one of those famous shots where his he's got that cigarette and his head snaps up. He's, you're going to yes. need a bigger boat. Yes. They said he improvised that. It's funny because one source said it was Steven Spielberg who improvised that, but oh. most sources said it was Roy Scheider. But if you notice, his cigarette is unlit when he says that. And when he backs up into it, he is, uh, the cigarette is lit. Ah, I did not but catch something that. else. Yeah, something else I read said that because the audience reaction was so uh, loud they couldn't hear his line so they added a little bit more of Steven Spielberg had to pump it up mm -hmm. so because he wanted it to be audible yep. I saw the same thing yep I it was, was a good line it I mean and everybody line. knows it and I love how he just comes into the frame there's just these <laughs> Roy Scheider and these uh, iconic shots are really cool I'm gonna jump in here and go back to something that we've already touched on when we shared our reactions to the men and that scene where Quint ends up going into the 
USS Indianapolis mm-hmm. talk, sharing the scars. Not only was it just super adorable the way they they had that interaction, but talking about the moves, the, the intentionality. The guys had been so disconnected, and not only did they have the humor and the banter, and they're actually laughing with each other, and they're showing their scars and they're connecting. But did you notice that they actually had physical connection? Yes, they, they like put one their put legs their, over. Yes, yes. It's like the, just that the physicality and how important that was to show Mm -hmm. that they had connected at the level where now they're actually like throwing one leg over another. Did you notice how they were wearing the same color? Quint Mm. and Hooper have on the almost exact same color shirt. And I wondered if that was done. You can't do something like this and it not be purposeful. Were they trying to show even though you guys are at two different coming at it from two different angles, you're really the same person? Is that because Scheider is in black. So he stands out against these two. But the two science guys and the the science guy and the guy that's the grizzled naturalist or whatever he was, they're in the same color and their hair is the same. It's Hmm. the curly hair. And at one point when they're both fixing the boat, their arms are down and it looks like the same person and they reach their arms up and all of that. And that was a lot of physical stuff they had to do on that boat, by the way. Yes. And every time they would show that shot of the feet right there by the water is they would have to kind of Mm. go around the edge. Mm -mm. (laughs) It was like, that was also suspenseful. Yes, it was. But no, back to your point, I started to say it might be a nod to how you would actually have to to dress if you were on a ship out in the sun and the sea Mm -hmm. and, you know, trying not to absorb the heat. But then why would Roy Scheider be Be in black? black. Because you would not wear that. Well, Ian Malcolm says that black reflects the sun. I don't know if it's true, but that's what Ian says. I thought that was really interesting. I like that. And and going back to your speech, I I had a note that it was masterful and I love the singing to ease the tension. And then we have the attack and we see it before they do because they're beating on yes. the 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 desk which mirrors the beating of the wood it was which beautifully he done. uses again to comic effect in indiana jones and the last crusade do you remember in the scene it's one of my favorite scenes in the library where they're trying to break the floor so they do one two and on the third the librarian looks and like that was real loud everybody who knows <laughs> the film will know what i'm talking about i love that scene love oh it. also there was a shooting star that really happened behind brian saw it and I looked up in the trivia and if you look it's at timestamp and one hour and 36 minutes and it's in the wide shot too it's a red beam that goes across and they said that was not CGI that was real that is so cool. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because Ian Shaw, Robert's son, was asked in an interview that he did, basically, do you think all the problems with the sharks and, and the shooting hurt the movie? And he ended up basically, I'm paraphrasing, but saying no, he thought it ended up helping because mm-hmm. it, it led to things like the changes in the script and the way they added the suspense and not showing the shark, all those things. But he also added because they hung out so much yeah. more together. It changed the relationships. Mm -hmm. It led to some of the things like the improvisation of the line that we mentioned just a minute Mm -hmm. ago that he felt like it impacted his dad coming up with the speech, you know, all those things. But that extra time together Mm -hmm. probably did make a difference. It forced them to concentrate more on the character than on the mechanics and the CGI. Mm -hmm. So it changed the trajectory of the film. It made it more, I mean, I think they intended for it to be a character piece, but it really made it a character piece because they couldn't show the shark. Right, right. Yeah, this wasn't, a movie about a shark. This was a movie about people on an epic battle to destroy something evil. Yeah. It was about the people. 
So who are we going to cheers, Ashley? Well, we already cheers Mr. Spielberg. So for this one, and Bruce, of course, why don't we cheers the writers? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. So Carl Gottlieb, Robert Shaw, Peter Benchley, and even who was the other fellow that you mentioned that had a little bit? Howard Sackler. Howard Sackler. Cheers to those fellows. Cheers. This episode of Scandal Water was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown. That's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. All music was written, composed, performed, and mixed by Josh Martin. The artwork was designed by Matt C. Adams, while our website was developed by Joshua Reith. If you like what you hear and you want to help keep the Scandal Water brewing, please go to our website, scandalwaterpodcast.com. Just click on your podcatcher of choice, then hit follow to subscribe. And while you're there, you might as well leave us a five-star rating and review. And don't forget, it's always more fun when you share your tea with others. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests advertisers or clearly professional psychologists thanks for listening cheers to you fellas oh hi scotty (laughs) i think i think scotty's cheersing as well (laughs) that was hysterical i know i'll have to put that in the outtakes Uh